Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast, day four of our daily editions here at the New York Film Festival, the 57th New York Film Festival. And today I'm seated with our executive director, Leslie Kleinberg. Welcome, Leslie. Hello. So in a little while, we're going we're gonna to hear the audio of what has become an annual tradition here at the festival, and that's our, our annual documentary talk, which is part of our NYFF live series of free talks every evening at 7 p.m. here at the Amphitheater at the Film Center, the Eleanor B. Monroe Film Center here at Lincoln Center. And Leslie, you've been moderating this conversation now for a few years, so it's become a, a nice tradition. Um, we'll, hear that, we'll hear that full audio in a minute, and you want to, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll You'll tell us more about that panel in a moment. But actually, as a way to get started in this conversation, um, I would love for you maybe to tell us about your own relationship to documentary film that some of our listeners may not know about, and also your relationship to the festival. Um, well, yeah, I, I started my career as a documentary filmmaker and worked for many years, almost 30 years, really, uh, working in the documentary field in all areas, from being a director to a producer to being a line producer, and of course, started as a intern and a production assistant, work my way up like everybody else. Um, I was very fortunate to have one of my own films screen here in 1997 um, as part of what was called Independence Night, and we screened a film that we uh, had at the Sundance Film Festival that year in 97 called Pullman at the Brink of Summer's End, uh, and then it was chosen to be screened here in New York, and it was for me, very thrilling because I grew up in New York and um, to show the film at the Walter Reed Theater was, you know, so meaningful to me. And I know when I meet with filmmakers now and I talk to them or interview them, um, I absolutely understand what it feels like uh, to present your film at the Walter Reed, what it means to present your film to the New York audiences. And it's very meaningful. Maybe tell us a little bit about how you got into documentary. We're about to get to the part of the podcast in a bit where you're going to talk with other documentary filmmakers about their own work and their own films. But what what originally drew you to documentary or how did you become a filmmaker and a producer in the documentary space? And what led you to be, even become a volunteer or an intern or a PA at the beginning of your career? Um, that's a good question. I. I grew up in New York, and I went to the High School of Music and Art, uh, which now is LaGuardia High School, but at the time was Music and Art. It was up in Harlem at City College, and it is the Fame High School, and I'm old enough to have been there when it was made Fame. <laughs> <laughs> and Alan Parker came to our classroom. I remember him coming to the classroom and wandering around. That film is sort of, it's called per, The Performing Arts. Uh, it was our sister school, mm. um, but it was really a combination of both our schools that was depicted in the, in the film. And I remember very well actually going to the premiere of it in Times Square with my whole high school and the whole high school of performing arts and it was pandemonium I was remember because a lot of people were in the film they had a lot of students in the film so it was just essentially people just screaming and screaming out people's names there's that guy I don't know. Um, but I was very fortunate at in high school to be introduced to a fellow student uh, named George Bamber who was an art student and I was a music student and he was making super eight films and somebody kind of thought we should meet, and I ended up working, basically working for him. He was a year older than me, but I worked on his feature-length Super 8 films, which he made. <laughs> um, and that, honestly, 
is absolutely the way that I got into film. I, I thought I might do theater. I was thinking about a lot of different things. But once I started making these films with him, um, that really created a spark for me. Mm. Um, and I was very fortunate. I went to Purchase College and went to the film conservatory there. And it was really there that I decided to become a documentary major um, and make documentaries. And when I got out of college, I was very fortunate to get an internship at Channel 13 and work there and kind of work my way up there doing nonfiction work on a documentary series and then in-studio series. And you might have, you'll hear in the uh, talk today that Lynn Novick, who's one of our um, uh, folks who uh, is included in our panel, uh, she was my intern the second year that I had my job when I was the, the production assistant. That was my big job. Lynn was my intern. Um, and that's how long I've known Lynn. So that's like 1987 or something. Um, and, and I've all, and you know, now, Lynn has a film at the festival, which premiered earlier this weekend, on yeah. the first weekend of the festival, College Behind Bars. Yeah, and I, I mean, and Lynn is just an extraordinary filmmaker, and I've watched her career uh, over many, many years. She's worked, she's worked with Ken Burns for uh, maybe 25 years, uh, but this is a film that she's directed on her own, and you'll hear her talk about it uh, on the panel. I was fortunate to do the intro and the Q&A yesterday at their premiere, um, but it's an extraordinary film called College Behind Bars. Very good. Well, you know, I think it, it's worth mentioning um, that coming up later in the festival, College Behind Bars is one of the films that we've added as an encore screening. Uh, that film is playing on October 12th at 1 p.m. Tickets are on sale now. We've got a few other a few other of our docs. Maybe um, you might want to tell us about, about some of these docs. Uh, Leslie, you can pick out any you, know, you want to mention, but I'm just going to mention a few of the others that have tickets on sale, at least right now. So folks that are listening to this podcast, uh, act quickly and get to filmlink.org to get first chance at some of these tickets. We've added encore screenings of Bully, Coward, Victim, the Roy Cohen film, which you'll hear more about on the panel later in this podcast. And that's on the 13th at 5.30 p.m. Um, some of our revivals, and uh, we've got Jazz on a Summer's Day on the 13th uh, at 5.15 p.m. Um, well, I should mention some of the other films that are not docs, just in fairness, as well. Um, also adding um, extra screening of Liberté to the ends of the earth, and a girl missing as well. So you can get the full schedule at filmlink.org. But maybe um, give us, if you want, if you don't mind, Leslie, a, a highlight of some of the films. You can either mention some of the films that are on the panel, but also maybe some of them that aren't, and maybe films films that are coming later in the festival that might be worth uh, folks checking out. Yeah. Well, already uh, the films that have premiered um, include Born to Be, which is uh, yeah. Tana Cipriano's uh, film that... Uh, premiered a couple days ago yeah. uh, in the Walter Reed to actually a pretty extraordinary uh, screening, and we've already had a second screening of that. Um, Rick Burns' film Oliver Sacks premieres today, um, so that's a film that uh, we have, I think, another, at least one more screening of after after yeah. that screening. Ivy Maripool's film Bully Coward Victim, uh, the story of Roy Cohn, had its world premiere yesterday and has a couple of other repeat screenings, as you said. Um, I really... Uh, feel that the selection this year is really terrific in terms of nonfiction, and it really covers a lot of territory in terms of content, but in style, um, I, I found it actually super interesting in talking to Lynn and Rick yesterday that they're both known as historical documentary filmmakers. Um, which are really narrative-driven, narration-driven films. And both of these new films of theirs are more verite. I mean, 
um, stylistically very different from what they've done before. So uh, I think they're uh, wonderful to see just as filmmakers uh, that they're trying different things. I'm going to highlight a couple as well, uh, just films that are either coming up or films that I know people are talking about in the doc program. Michael Apted's series of films and the latest of which is 63 Up has been um, has been a very popular title in this year's festival, not surprisingly, and people have a long history and relationship with that whole series. He goes back every seven years and looks at a particular family. That film's playing uh, this coming weekend, October 5th and October 7th. Uh, I know that's been a, a tough ticket to get, but I would encourage audiences to uh, do the standby line for that one. And one other that um, maybe might be worth mentioning is The Booksellers, which is a New York movie that we, we can't yeah. make enough tickets for that movie. I love that movie. It's so terrific. And it really is a, you know, a film that um, people um, will really love. If I, I found it actually very educational because I that was not, I didn't, I don't buy antique books. I didn't know anything about. It seemed very lofty idea to me, um, but it really humanized the whole process and what it really means to have a book and what that represents. That film um, is going to be uh, premiering on October 7th with a repeat screening October 9th. Um, and I believe we also have a, an encore screening of it. Um, that's also on standby. We're not yeah. going to do justice to the the, the program in this uh, this short uh, you know few minutes on this podcast of of promoting all the films. But I, I encourage anyone who um, who really is interested in the doc program to to log on to filmlink.org, get more information. There's uh, sc- tickets available for a number of these films, and also uh, standby tickets and also added screenings that you can check out. Um, later in the festival. Leslie, as a, as a sort of preview for folks and, and a tease to get folks to keep listening to this podcast, maybe just uh, share a little bit of insight on the panel that folks are about to hear. Tell us a bit more about who's on the panel and maybe some of, more, some of the broader topics that we're going to hear about in today's po- podcast. The folks who um, joined me on this panel yesterday were uh, Tanya Cipriano from the film Born to Be, Rick Burns from the film Oliver Sacks, Ivy Maripool, whose film Bully, Coward, Victim, The Story of Roy Cohn, premiered yesterday, and Lynn Novick, who's the director of College Behind Bars. And your former um, intern. And my former intern. So I don't want to, you know, she's kind of have to live up. She brought it up, not me, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, I, you know, I have to say that... Um, Every year I have done this panel now for like, this is maybe my fourth time, I'm not, I'm not sure. And it's a struggle sometimes because the films are very different and the styles are different, but yet we somehow figure out a way to connect the dots somehow. Um, it's really different when you're working in nonfiction. There's more camaraderie and community. And so there are more points of connection in any case. It's interesting on this particular panel that uh, Buddy Squires, who's a a real le- he's a kind of legendary cinematographer in the documentary world um, has worked with you know Ken and Rick Burns for many many years I worked with him on docs early in my career as well um, but he shot both uh, Rick and Lynn's film um, it's it's great to see that connective tissue people who are editors on one film help in other films the documentary community is I think to me um, 
just a beautiful place to work. And I've always been drawn to it because I think that there's a, well, people can be competitive and that doesn't, it'd be a lie to say people don't compete with one another. They do. But in general, you see much more of a connection between the filmmakers. They, we really do people share, camera people, editors, mm-hmm. post people. It's just, it's just a very small world and it's much, much better when you live in it um, together. <laughs> and, um, and it's a hard world because I think uh, documentaries are still, they're hard to fund, they're hard to get money, even in the quote unquote renaissance of documentaries. That can be um, why it's competitive, I bet, you know? Yeah. Limited, and limited funds. Yeah. And everybody wants access to those. Well, there's always, uh, yeah, exactly right. And I think there is a little bit of a, a myth around this idea that there are quote unquote, some people who can always get their films funded. You know, some people, there are those people. I actually don't know who those people are. <laughs> um, it's but tough for everyone. It's, it is. It really is tough for everybody. And, and if you think that somebody has it easy, you should probably think twice about it because it really <laughs> is not that easy. Well, if there's one takeaway, we hope that, that all of you listeners of this podcast will have from today's edition of this daily podcast. It's to focus in and take a look at our Spotlight on Documentaries section here at the New York Film Festival. It's a really rich program this year, and we hope that um, you'll definitely tune into this podcast again tomorrow, but also take a chance and go see a couple of documentaries at the New York Film Festival. Leslie, thank you for doing this panel and this this conversation today to lead into it. And now let's take a listen to Leslie Kleinberg's annual documentary talk at the New York Film Festival. With 59 Primetime Emmys and 30 Academy Awards, HBO Documentary Films has been bringing audiences a full spectrum of stellar non-fiction programming by acclaimed documentary filmmakers for decades. Dive into the year's most compelling documentaries and get ready for the powerful films to come. Stream the stories that matter, including The Case Against Adnan Saeed, The Inventor, Emmy Award-winning Leaving Neverland, just to name a few. And look out for the exciting new films coming soon only on HBO. Um, I, I do joke around a little bit about how the films are not connected because they're, they're just, I think one of the wonderful things about our spotlight section is that the, the, the nonfiction documentaries, um, they are very varied uh, in approach style um, and of course uh, in subject matter. So um, I wanted to just have an opportunity for each of the filmmakers to just talk a little bit about their film. Um, and maybe I would start by asking sort of uh, Tanya, if you could start with uh, sort of, yeah, I so I'm sorry, sorry. Um, you're fresh from your Q&A, you should be like, <laughs> um, But maybe you could just start off by talking a little bit about uh, your film and maybe the impetus for how you got it started and you know, what inspired you to tell your story. Um, well, I actually was approached by the producer, uh, Michelle Kuhayashi. Um, she had the idea of, uh, she knew this doctor at the center, Mount Sinai, the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery, and um, wanted to see about the possibility of making a documentary. And um, I allowed me to meet the doctor and get access to people at the hospital. That then, but it took like about a year for us to get the project started. I think both because it was like, you know, her first project. So it was even like, you know, getting her to understand that this was possible. And then secondly, 
also, um, you know, getting all the, the, the paperwork together to be able to go inside of those spaces. Um, we started with this idea that, you know, let's follow a few of the patients inside of the transgender medicine um, and surgery center, um, following some of the patients to tell the story, what it's about going through surgical transitioning. And um, by meeting the doctor who gave us access, I've, day two, I was already taken by his passion and commitment to that community and um, thought, saw that there was a way of being able to tell this story to a larger audience if I followed him through by, you know, and having him introduce the patients. So we spent like two years filming. Um, I was incredibly lucky on the project because I did have a producer that was very successful in raising funds. Um, the film was a huge part done through like, you know, a private foundation and then private individuals. So for the first time ever in my life, I could make a film the way I wanted to make because I had access to being able to then do, like, you know, hire the cameraman that I wanted to hire and hire the editors that I was able to hire. So, and I hope I never have to go back where I was before. <laughs> I don't know. Amen. <laughs> well, this speaks to a, a larger truth that maybe we could get into later about funding of documentaries and the process that a lot of people have to go through because so often you start a film and you don't have the funding and you just have to just start it and figure out how to start it. I think you were yeah. saying that you bought a camera and that's how you started. You yeah, we started with a bought camera, but we ended in, like, in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> we started there, yeah. And so we, we were there like inside of the clinics and surgery rooms for the period of two years. We filmed seven surgeries, most of them historical surgeries in New York City. Um, you know, being the first vaginoplasty, the first phalloplasty, the first surgery, uh, fa uh, facial feminization surgery that the doctor was doing all by himself and uh, uh, trying something new. And so it was, it, was quite a, it was quite an amazing journey to witness. And uh, yeah, and then and follow four patients together with the doctor. Thank you. And Lynn, you actually, access is a big part of your, two, these are two institutions yeah. trying to shoot yeah. in a hospital yeah. and a prison. See, I'm, I'm, things are coming together. These <laughs> are, we're making the connections, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm resonating a lot of the things that you said. Our film was also following people over time and getting unusual access to film inside medium and maximum security prisons. The producer, Sarah Botstein, and I started talking about the film in 2013. It took us a year to get permission from the Department of Corrections. And our idea was to follow a group of people, men and women in different prisons, who were enrolled in college classes and working toward a degree. And really, the film shows through their stories the transformative power of education. And um, you know, it, it is a testament to the power of this medium, actually, that the camera can bring you places that the rest we don't usually get to go, meet people you wouldn't otherwise meet, and get to know them very intimately. And if they trust you and feel comfortable as time goes on, this came out in our Q&A yesterday, some of the subjects were here saying they didn't trust us at first, they weren't really sure, but over time, and this was a five-year project, so over time means really quite a long time, revealing more and more of themselves and sharing stories about their past and their incarceration and their families and what the experience they're having as um, high-level college students getting a very 
excellent education, what that meant to them. That took a long time. So it, so it was over time, this process of discovery, them discovering us, us discovering them, and kind of collaborating on what the stories would be ultimately. And you shot it over five years. Um, and how long did it take you to edit all yeah. of that? Yeah, so our editor, Trisha Reedy, and her assistant, Chase Horton, uh, worked for two years on editing. We had probably 400 hours of material, and we were going to make a feature when we started. And you know, we started with no money and just an idea and a little sort of a grant to shoot for a few days. And um, when we came back with maybe the first I would say the first three or four days of shooting, we edited together a little clip reel to try to raise more money. And we immediately began to think, maybe this is going to be bigger than a feature, because the stories are so rich, we're going to follow people over time. So when we had our 400 hours, we sort of assembled the highlights, you know, and that was maybe 10 hours of material. And it's just it was not possible to boil that down to a 90-minute feature. So we ended up with a four-part series. So, you know, it's the material telling us and also then had to raise more money and sort of keep the whole machine going longer to sort of do justice to the material that we had collected. And Rick, um, you had, uh, you worked with Oliver for a certain amount of time, is that right? Could you talk a little bit about the, how your, your process started and, your, and the project itself? Yeah, it was sort of <clears throat> kind of ass backwards necessarily from the start. Um, in that um, uh, Bonnie, my wife, who's here, and I got a call um, in early January of 2015 um, from a woman named Kate Edgar, who we didn't know, uh, who turned out to have been working with Oliver for the previous 35 years as an editor and as kind of, as somebody in the film says, his everything, really, which is true. And the news was, I had never met Oliver before, that Oliver, who was 81 at the time, had just received, days before, a mortal diagnosis. He had had an ocular melanoma um, some five or six years before, rare form of cancer, almost never comes back or metastasized. It did. Um, and he had six months to live. So would we come in and start filming him? So there was no, you know, it kind of suited my own impulsive nature because there was no need or possibility to do R&D because Oliver would have been dead. So we just jumped right in within a few weeks and filmed him over the course of the first filming episode was 12 hours a day, five days a week, which was very characteristic of anything that Oliver kind of happened around Oliver. It was extreme. It was intensive. It happened on his kind of temporality. It was exhilarating and exhausting and extraordinary. Um, so we started on a, a Monday and ended on a Friday night um, and then followed him on three more occasions in April and June um, of 2015. And then the, the thing really got him around the neck and he kind of withdrew from any kind of public um, circumstance and died on August 30th, uh, 2015 at just 82. Um, we then interviewed 25 of his closest friends, Tourette's, autistic patients, Temple Grandin, Nobel Prize winning scientists, Eric Kandel, um, you know, and the, for me the striking thing about it was, of course, like everyone, I had a formed imp a impression very positive of Oliver through his written work. Um, I didn't know until Kate Edgar called that he was gay. And I would say that almost no one did. It was, he was the, a, a tightly closeted gay man. Um, he had, at 81, just finished a very revealing memoir, which was 
going to be published by Knopf later in 2015. They advanced the publication date because he would have been dead, as he would have been if it had come out as it was supposed to in September of 2015. He was very, very willing in that book uniquely to grapple with a lot of stuff that had been roiling around for a long time. He had been celibate for 35 years. Um, he had been enormously private. Um, sort of shy to, not a fault, but to an extreme degree. Um, and at the same time, kind of remarkably, sort of almost shockingly open. Um, and so the time anybody spent with him was kind of dealing with these sort of extremes of personality that when I walked in his door, like most, you know, semi-sane people, I felt, I, I instantly worried that he was a massive narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and I sort of, I didn't freeze, but I had a really strong feeling like, I can't make a film if he's a narcissistic personality disorder, because I don't like narcissistic personality disorders. Um, and it turned out that he wasn't. He's a very, he was a very extreme person in so many ways, but he had just an extraordinarily childlike, relentless, sometimes self-destructively impulsive desire to understand, to go further, to think deeply, um, to explore. And the more I got to know him, and then after his death through people who knew him, the more my colleagues and I, many of whom are here, Julie Goldman, Chris Clements, um, Doug um, Wilson, David Wilson, we like, you know, we're really struck by um, what an extraordinary figure he was. Telling the story, sort of ass backwards, as I say, sort of at five minutes to midnight, an old man talking about, you know, not the fact that he was about to die, though he was not reticent about that, but what the hell does this mean? What's going on? It was just an enormous, that was the starting point, and what really, I think, was certainly unusual in my experience to be with somebody who has all his energies intact as he's trying to figure out and, and impart to others, who am I? What's this whole process about? Um, and, you know, pretty soon it'll be over. Wow, I'm going to come back to that in a second. <laughs> Ivy, well, you didn't get access to Roy Cohn, but you didn't really want that, did you? Um, tell us a little bit. I know this is a, a personal story in a lot of ways, and I think for me it was one of the things that makes it so special is it's told through the lens of a real person whose life has truly been impacted by the life of Roy Cohn. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you got the gumption to do that and figured it out that you could have the strength actually to make this film. Well, so, so my film is about Roy Cohn who um, crossed paths with my family when uh, one of his first jobs out of law school in the early 1950s was to be an assistant prosecutor in my grandparents' uh, trial. Um, they were on trial for accused of stealing the secret of the atom bomb and giving it to the Soviet Union. These are my father's parents, and they were executed in 1953, and Roy Cohn had a lot, of, lot to do with that. Um, we'd explore in the film his role in coaching key witnesses and pushing for their execution, knowing full well that at least my grandmother was, in, was innocent and my grandfather really hadn't done what he'd been accused of. Um, so that's kind of what was the starting point. And so th this is a person, obviously, that I knew about since I was a, a kid, really didn't know 
much more than that. Um, and there are a lot of villains in, in this story. So there was you know, the judge and J. Edgar Hoover and et cetera. So I, um, but what, what happened is that in 1988, I was with my father in, in Washington, D.C., and we visited the AIDS Memorial Quilt, which was, if any of you have heard of it or remember it, it was a massive exhibition of tens of thousands of panels, actually, of people who died of AIDS. And it was a very moving um, exhibit. And it was, we could have walked into any point onto the mall to see, and to, but the first panel we saw was Roy Cohn. Someone had made a panel for Cohn. I didn't know he was gay. I didn't know he had died of AIDS. And I thought, no, and this is the guy who, in 1953, had been um, you know, pushed for my grandparents' execution. So I thought, well, this is a fascinating figure that stuck with me for a long, long time. Um, and I, for years, I thought about making a film about him because of this fascinating, the, the inter interest in this secret life that he led and how that might have created the person that, you know, how that contributed to him being this kind of, you know, this vicious, you know, um, anti-communist, anti-gay himself um, person. So, but then Donald Trump was elected and I thought, well, he was, Cohn was Donald Trump's mentor, lawyer, and friend, good friend. I thought, well, this is really the time to do this. If I'm ever gonna finally make this film, you know, this is what I think all of us have lots of projects that we think about for years and you think, oh, am I gonna do it? Am I gonna do it? And to answer your question more directly, Leslie, it's very, hard sometimes to decide to use yourself and your family and your personal story in a film. Um, I've done it once before and I thought I was never going to do it again. <laughs> and I had actually kind of vowed not to do this again. But sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes there's an urgency to it. And sometimes you can't, sometimes the story doesn't let go of you. And that's kind of what happened to me. It was a convergence of all those things. And I really felt compelled that when we finally decided that's, I got to do this. Was there anything about making the film that surprised you? Anything that you discovered or uh, in yourself even um, as a filmmaker, um, aside from anything you might have thought of or may have discovered about the topic or the person? Well, I think um, I, I found that I had more empathy for Cone than I ever could have imagined. I really, that's really, I mean, I, I always sought to look beyond the kind of you know, just calling him evil and just thinking of him that way because you can't make a whole film about someone and just have this kind of one note thing. But I didn't really think that I would have gotten to the point of having, but then it was more complicated than that. It's like, I actually, I, I don't forgive him, but I, I see him as, that's why our title is borrowed from the quilt itself, bully, coward, victim. But he's not just a victim because he died of AIDS, he's a victim because he was, he was a closeted gay man who, you look at uh, footage and, photo and photographs of him at periods of time in his life when he was happy, and then you see how he really became this you know, miserable, um, angry, malevolent force. And I really believe that a lot of that came from the fact that he, had to, he buried so much, he was so afraid. So I actually have empathy for that and for, that he, had, that he experienced that. Not how he used it, <laughs> not how it came out of him, but so that, that did surprise me, especially given you know, how much you know, he really uh, you know, had a, a 
horrible he did a horrible thing and affected my family forever well it, it's it's amazing that you could even think about it in that context because that's a tribute to you as a person as a filmmaker that you could even get to that point to be to be fair to you because I don't know it's tough it's tough it's that your subject matters is somebody like that you don't like that is difficult to be you, yeah. And then in this context, your, your film really is about that, whereas your film is about a very beloved person, and that's just as challenging in some ways, but, right? But, but closeted for oh, much of his life. I mean. See how I'm making these connections? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just want to get a little credit for that. But no, yes. I'm, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just as challenging to me to think about making a film about someone that's beloved as it is to make something about a film that someone is maybe universally or more or less universally hated. I mean, I'm just jumping to say that I think what makes any fi film worth watching is that it, it, even if you love someone or you hate them, if through the artistry of the filmmaking you see that they're complicated mm -hmm. and that you can feel more than one way about someone. And if it's a one-dimensional, this person's terrible or this is a saint or whatever, it's sort of not, ultimately you get that in the first five minutes. And I think it sounds, I mean, I, I can't wait to see both of your films, but that's what will make them, I'm sure, so enduring because we're all complicated. None of us are that simple. And I think if we see ourselves in that, that's what makes documentary in a way so powerful. I think that speaks to your the subjects of your film as well. This is, you, you get to know all of these folks very in a much deeper way and have a real clear understanding, even when you find out maybe why they're in prison or what they might have done. But you're, you've humanized them to a point where you can really understand. I think the hook of education is a fascinating one. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think for Sarah and me and for our whole team, we were very um, convinced in the beginning of our project that we, we were going to have our audience go through the same journey we went through, in a sense, of getting to know people. And you know, so many times you see films or read articles or in the media, anyone who has a criminal record or is incarcerated, the first thing you find out about them is their record. You know, so-and-so murdered this person, or so-and-so, that is the identifying information, is their conviction. And which of us wants to be known by the worst thing we've done, and have that be the label that's just on your chest, no matter who you are. So we felt, as filmmakers, we would get to know people, and we didn't ask them about, I mean, you can look it up if you want, for anyone who's in New York State Prison, you can get some basic information about their conviction. But we really didn't look into it until we got to know people well. And then we slowly said, do you want to talk about this? And if you do, how do you, you know, in what way? And, you know, you don't have to. Obviously, it's your choice. But I think ultimately all the um, incarcerated students that we got to know wanted to tell their story. And those stories are complicated. And nobody sugarcoats or kind of lets themselves off the hook. And so people reckoning with and confronting their own complicated past is partly they would say, and they did say yesterday, that the effect of the liberal arts education they've gotten through Bard College helped them to understand who they were and why they did what they did and how to move you know, forward in a productive way. So it's, um, yeah, I think the complexity is what makes us all lean in. And you had to go through a process too of getting to know subjects of your film and getting them to be open to this very, very, very personal matter that you're, you're delving into. I'm wondering what that process was like with you in terms of getting to know the subjects. Yes, I think, uh, I mean, just to go back a little bit, because I, I, as I was being introduced, I got introduced to a lot of patients. We were there, like, you know, 
what would happen is that, like, especially in the clinics, we would go in the morning and uh, uh, the day before, two days before, like, they would already be told that there was going to be a camera there. And uh, we, the process of, of meeting people and seeing who we followed was very, it, it took a while. It was like, we were there, like, they, they would tell that we were there with the camera who wanted to be filmed or not. But to be in those spaces where you also have to make a decision, okay, are we really going to follow this person? I mean, we would see it sometimes 20 people in one day, you know? And, um, but um, I found that uh, the, the, during this, for me, the one thing that was, that I discovered was, and I find that, I, that it has happened also in other works, is that you go there to make one film and really to be open to see you know, to, to see that character and the story that, that, that maybe is not the person you're looking for. Like in this case, it was the doctor. The, it took a long time to convince the doctor to be in the film. But I found out, like, you know, not only, I, I was talking about, like, you know, the relationship that he had with his patients was so special. But um, from my second day there, I found out that he was a musician and that he was actually trained as a musician first and that uh, he um, wishes to this day to be a musician. His family, when he finished the school at Juilliard, and uh, he was actually like a master at what he did, but the family asked him to go back to school and do something he could make money. And he had a brother who was already a doctor that convinced him to go to med school. So here you have a man who, uh, I mean, this, this is the story that I, that I thought, like, let me follow this. is a man that he wishes he was a musician and he couldn't be. And what does he do today? Is like he helps people be who they want to be. And in this case, I, I tried then to find the, the, the characters that spoke about the diversity of this community, although I'll never get there because it's just endless, <laughs> the people that I, and the types of lives and backgrounds, but um, also very, very important and the most, and, and it's still difficult to this day, is that of making the relationships with the subjects, a lot of them do not have families, do not have friends, they live very lonely lives, and where I literally had to, like, you know, still to this day, like, be that family for them while making the film. And, um, but as I hope people see when they watch the film is that they do see the intimacy of the spaces that I'm allowed to and how much they are comfortable with uh, giving. Um, there were some patients that would say, can you please show my body, not show my face? I made sure from the very beginning that I did not want to, um, that, that I would only follow people that were comfortable saying their name and showing their faces. Um, and this is also a stylistic thing because I do not, like for me it's very important that these people are open and um, to talk about who they are and their experiences. Um, and then it was making that connection where they felt very comfortable about us being, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many people here got to see the film, but we're in really tight little spaces. And you wanna go to a doctor's clinic, they're very small, very small. The camera is there and it's all about body parts. And I mean, it's, it, it, was, it was really tough, you know, like to be able to get everybody to be on that comfort level. Um, 
But I think that also what allowed is that um, the, another process that I used during the filming is that uh, I talked a lot. I mean, I, Jeffrey um, Johnson, who was the cinematographer, I had worked on other projects with him and I made sure that before we went there that he knew what we were getting. And a lot of times I would just let him alone in the room. I would not be inside of the room. So that's, I think, another way that people felt very comfortable with really. I don't know if that answered. No, it did. Well, it answered that and other questions. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, no, I mean, you're, you, you, I think you do have to see the film to understand the intimacy of what is depicted and what you were able to capture. And that, to me, is extraordinary part of it from the perspective of the access, but the subjects who were, well, who were open. And I think that is, is what makes your film extraordinary in, in the way that you're able to show us a world that we don't know. Um, and I, that leads me to thinking to Lynn about your film because I think in that way it also, we're being allowed to see something that most of us don't know about, right? It's just a world that, it's an institution within an institution. So, um, and you had full access to that school within both of these uh, prisons and I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. And I just wanted to make one other point just to say that you've been making mostly historical films, so historical documentaries. If you don't know who Lynn Novick is, Google her t tonight when you get home. <laughs> um, but you know, this is a verite film, really, and it's a, very, it's a bit of a departure from stylistically, right. and I'm wondering if you want to talk and, a little right, bit about just that. Just to say, so when I first started out in this world, I was, a P I was an intern, and Leslie was my boss. She was the PA at WNET. <laughs> and then I went from there to work for Ken Burns and his brother Rick Burns, who were working on the Civil War series that came out in 1990, and from then worked many years on historical pieces, like Leslie said. So this was a very different project. And it's really great to be here with all of you for all those reasons. But um, our first day of shooting, really, Sarah and I felt that you know this was an extraordinary opportunity because the camera can bring you to places that you don't, the rest of us, unless you've been incarcerated or have a very close family member who's been incarcerated. These are purposefully walled off places that the rest of society does not see and is not allowed to see and doesn't have access to. And our film was not specifically about what is it like to be incarcerated, but what is it like to be in college while incarcerated. So we started off mostly with access on the school floor of the prisons that we were in. And over time, we were able to convince the Department of Corrections to let us see more and more. Because by showing just the students in class, you sort of forget where they are after a while. And so early screenings, people said, this is really interesting. They're studying Plato. They're studying Shakespeare. They're studying algebra, Mandarin, you know, very advanced topics. But you kind of forget that anyone's in prison here. So we asked to be able to film people in their cells. And I think those moments are some of the most intimate, very small spaces. And you see how people organize their living space with their schoolwork and their personal, whatever they have and what they do or don't put on the wall. And you know, just this, it was very, it could be very intrusive, but I think it was actually very collaborative that the students wanted us to see and wanted the world to see how they live and manage being students and incarcerated at the same time. And it's actually, you kind of have to see it visually to really appreciate. So it's, I could tell you about it, but it doesn't really compute until you see the, the footage. And we had that experience over and over again making the film that it felt like such a privilege to work on a film like this because it was sort of, um, there isn't really any way to explain what we were, the story unless the camera could help you see it. And our cinematographers, Buddy Squires, who um, we've, many of us have worked with, and Nadia Hallgren, 
were so um, energized by the process of being able to bring the cameras to these places that they would basically say, next time you have a shoot, make sure you invite me. I don't, mm -hmm. want, I want, I don't want to miss a single opportunity to be there. So there was something very special about being able to be present for these very um, revelatory experiences. You know, I want to say about Lynn's film, which I haven't seen the whole thing, but um, was, was privileged to see parts of it in construction, and most recently, about a year ago, about a half an hour opening. You know, I mean, we're all working with the same material. It's like, you know, we have cameras, you know, they're either real, it's either cinema verite or it's art photographs or archival footage or their interviews or whatever. So, you know, the, you know, the palette is extremely narrow. Um, <laughs> there are only a few things to do. There's no way to really reinvent the wheel, except what I'm really amazed by is in this film, which I hope all of you can see, um, is that there's this extraordinary quality where you're looking at these men and women um, I've actually only seen footage of the, of the men. And there, are, there are women as well, yes. Um, and what you can feel looking at the film frame is this remarkable stillness of the way the film is looking at them or just letting you listen and, and look at them and an incredible tension and you feel so much every nanosecond. They're in this world where you're not and you're here. And that makes all the difference in the world. And there is, it's, it's not, not stressful, it's sort of almost exhilaratingly focuses your intention. So it's really, I, I'm really amazed that, and I'm sure in your film and your film as well, there are ways in which there are micro innovations within documentary filmmaking because it can't always be the same. It has to address its subject in a new way, and that in this film, I know it does. So just anybody that's interested in how you know, film progresses, see these films because they're really steps forward. That's a really excellent point. Um, and, and Rick, I'm thinking about your style as well because you're, this is, I don't know if I've seen a film of yours that doesn't have narration. And... Yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, we made a film about American Ballet Theater, which was all interviews, but um, this was really different in that there isn't a narrator, um, there's like 25, talkaholics, um, um, but including Oliver preeminently, um, but well, everyone. But you know, what, what our film is about is really something invisible too. Um, and, but it's more sort of universally invisible. It's like, what is it to be a person inside your own head? I mean, Leslie, there you are <laughs> occupying this space, but you're the only one who's looking out at your eyes. That's the universal condition of us all. It's sort of banal to say that, but it's the kind of foundational reality in which all of us live alone and together. Yeah. And Oliver was somebody who, as an atheist, English, um, Jew, homosexual, um, found himself wondering his whole life. He had a, everybody in his family was a doctor, mom and dad two of his three older brothers, except his closest older brother, Michael, who was schizophrenic. So Oliver, as the sort of the, the, the baby prodigal, was always sort of going, who am I? How, what, what, what am I? And between the schizophrenia of his brother, which he always worried he was as well, um, and the sense that it was the family duty to become a doctor. Um, he used his complicated intersection of complete idiosyncrasy 
and sort of clinical doctorly responsibility to ask this question, who am I, by asking of other people, who are you? And not just any other people, people often who couldn't speak, people who were in coma or seemed to be in coma, people who were seriously, seriously compromised. And what he wanted to do at a time when, when certainly neurobiology and neuroscience was remarkably quantitative, it was like what you could measure and what you could see. And, um, he wanted to get at this thing that you can't measure and you can't see. He wanted the qualitative data of finding out who these people were as a way of also in some sense interrogating himself, who am I? And that, I would say, lifelong obsession was like all, I think, really, really gifted people. Something in them gives an order, and, and I don't want to say uniformity, but a coherence and an insistent vector to their life that most of us don't have. Most of us live happily, you know, in a more multifarious way. And then there are some among us, and Oliver was certainly one of those people, who was compelled to live this life constantly asking that kind of question. Um, and so that, that kind of funny, that's where movie, moviegoers are. They're sitting in the dark, looking out, having experiences on the inside about what they see and hear. So in a way, Oliver was a moviegoer or a storyteller. And the stories and movies he wanted to tell were stories and movies, movies about very, very unusual people. And he wanted to not judge them. And he wanted to make sure that you understood we were all just as irreducibly idiosyncratic as any of these people who maybe on the surface seemed more obviously so. So there's this tremendous kind of the joy of Oliver's work, which is I think what all readers found, or many readers find um, in, in his work, is his sense of kind of, on the one hand, yes, he's looking at these cases of remarkable, and fortunately, relatively rare idiosyncrasy. You know, people who are, have brain lesions and people who were sort of in coma or seemed to be for 40 years from encephalitis lethargica, which they'd had in the 20s and had been warehoused. I mean, so who, what was going on in those people? Who's in there? And that sense in which what he's doing, he's, he's creating a new kind of universal humanistic database in which the data is not quantitative, it's the data is the qualitative aspect of what it's like to be a person in any way. And what a remarkable kind of lifelong obsessive compulsive quest to have. That's just a tip of the iceberg is what I'm trying to say. And I hope you'll see, I mean this film is remarkable and I think you're exactly right because it's really about who we are. And film is so interesting this way because there is a point of view because a camera's being pointed at somebody and someone's made a choice about where that camera's going to be pointed. Um, and so, yeah, I always find so interesting, and in, sometimes in Q and A's, people say, "I noticed that you, you know, were showing this image when someone was talking. Was that intentional?" <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, you know, and I think actually because of what we do, everything has to be intentional. We make a thousand decisions for every one minute of film. Everything is intentional. So, what we're pointing the camera at, and where we're making the edit point, and what you're going to hear, and if there's sound effects or music, or I mean, it's just a million decisions to create something that hopefully doesn't feel intentional. So I, I can't wait to see the film. And that makes me think, uh, Ivy, about the, the enormous amount of archival and other material you have. Um, w w what did you find that transformed your film? Was there a moment, was there a piece of archival tape or video or something that just made you think differently or made the film take a different direction? 
Well, yeah, I mean, our, our film is packed with archival um, footage and stills, and most remarkably for us and for me, I think, was the audio tapes that we got. So to be able to have, since we didn't have, you know, I didn't have Roy Cohn to talk to, as, as you had Oliver, and um, nor maybe would I have wanted to, I don't know. <laughs> um, but to have him almost narrating his own story um, and, and in a way, because the, the tapes that we initially got a hold of, which really was what sent, sent me to the point of saying, okay, now we really are going to make this film, because having that um, material that no one had ever heard, and yeah, I mean, there's only so, so far I was going to be able to go with my own story. I wanted us to understand Cone. So to hear him talk about his own life, is is pretty amazing in a in a very and it's it's not it's it's kind of a naturalistic um, conversational tone that we have him in with a with a reporter. It's not it's not a formal interview, so that makes it even better. Um, so that was one. Later, uh, after we'd been in production for a while, and I I mean I was looking for tapes everywhere. I mean I, people would tell me, oh I I talked to him for hours and I recorded it, but can't find the tapes. <laughs> can't find the tape. I mean we became obsessed with. I mean there are tapes out there. If anyone finds them, let's we're gonna get them now. We're gonna get them now. But far far pretty far along in the process, I interviewed a woman named Lois Romano, who's a journal who's a journalist at the Washington Post who cultivated Cohn as a source and also had interviewed Trump and has great, great stories and great things to contribute to the film. But she, af well after I'd interviewed her, she, she called and said, I found my tapes. And those tapes turned out to be even better than the ones we had. I shouldn't say better, but added something that I'd never thought we would have, which is the, the sound of his voice as he's extremely ill and he's towards the end of his life and he's reflecting a little, you know, somewhat as much as he was capable of possibly. And I find they were just so powerful to hear. And um, so to me, that was that was a great surprise and gift to get to get at the end. Um, and then we also very even later in the process, get, got access to a private archive um, of Cohn's personal photos, which showed these, these Polaroids of him enjoying his life in Provincetown, where he lived very at Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is a, a well-known gay community in the summer especially. And he would go there and, and, and get to live the life that he wished he had been able to live, I believe. So these Polaroids that we, we were able to, at the le very last minute, swap out stills that we had initially had was, was just, we were just, couldn't believe the luck and Julie the and Goldman the, is shaking her head in agreement. <laughs> I, it, was like, it was during the color correct. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even time. We were in the color correct, actually saying, "Oh, we could swap that one out for that, and that one out for that." It was like it was like Christmas morning with with Polaroids. Have you, have you all seen Capturing the Freedmans? Do you remember that film? They, that film, I don't know if you know, but famously they didn't have the whole movies for that film until they were editing like a year into the film. And then suddenly someone said, oh yeah, we have these whole movies. Like, oh, the whole movie is based on these home. I mean, if you go back and watch it now, imagine it without the whole movies that are in it. But they were well into the editing process before someone said, oh yeah, by the way, 
Would you like to look at these home movies? So we have a, a few more minutes left, about 10 minutes, and I just thought I would um, throw it out to this group here and make sure if anyone had any questions, this is not the time to be shy. So I was curious, especially in the prison and then a little in the hospital, about the technical choice about what camera and scale of camera and blah, 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 and how many people and... Okay. Um, I can quickly talk. So our, our, we had two cinematographers principally, Betty, uh, I mean, sorry, Nadia Hallgren and Betty Squires, and they used different cameras. So Betty used the Amira, which is an extraordinary camera in every kind of light. And just, I mean, the images are just stunning, stunning, stunning. And um, it's a bigger operation. Nadia is, used the C300, which is much smaller, and she carried it on her chest, basically. And she's, they're both actually rather small people, don't take up a lot of space. Um, <laughs> But you know, navigating the camera in these small spaces was challenging. And one of the students was saying yesterday, and they've talked about this before, that for them, you know, it's people need when you're incarcerated, your personal space is very important, and anyone encroaching on it can be challenging. So they had to learn to get comfortable with the camera. Giovanni was saying, like, Buddy was right up next to me, and I was just, you know, that was hard to get used to. Um, but I think both cinematographers, in their different ways, just made this. The students feel but, comfortable. But going in, did you have concerns that the presence, I mean, in your mind, were you kind of like, does the camera did, change did anything? The school, well, of course it does. But <laughs> did, did the school setting just relax everything so you felt like, or did you kind of feel like you still wanted to have something that was more subtle to not? I'm not sure I actually thing? understand the question, but. Um, You're literally getting yeah, that. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> the, um, you know, um, the one of the, one of the things that happened was just everybody who was being filmed had to get comfortable being filmed. I think that's true in any film, any process. And I think we did a lot of shooting actually that we ended up realizing, you know, we're probably not gonna use that, but it was actually really great, even though it was expensive to bring our camera crews here for a day, just so people can get comfortable with what we're doing. Um, so that happened a lot. And um, otherwise, I, I don't think the process is probably that different from any other documentary, except in the sense that we had to get all of our equipment into, into a correctional facility and out, and every single item had to be checked on the way in and on the way out, and you had to have a gear list, and if anything that you brought wasn't on that gear list, it had to go back to the car, and if you didn't have everything on the way out, it was very serious. So that, everyone had to get used to that level of security, and um, took a little while, and occasionally some things, it got complicated occasionally, nothing too serious, but you know, someone would realize they had brought something they shouldn't have, had to run back to the car and that kind of thing. But it just was a layer of attention to the process that, you know, kept everyone very focused. I don't know what your name, but the filmmaker who made the film about transsexual, what, what, what attracted you to that subject? Um, I think it, well, as I said, I mean, it was, it, the. The, the story came to me, like, but uh, what attracted me most is that I had already done three different films about, um, you know, specifically on health and HIV AIDS. And um, those, and also like those films had traveled a lot to LGBTQ film festivals. I did not know anything about um, transgenders. And when I started to, hear about it, like how can I know so much 
about this community, not know really about it was I think it was really like of finding out about how little I know um, as I as I walked into that world. Um, another thing is also the same. Um, this, it's a topic that actually Michelle brought up earlier today, finding out the percentage of uh, people that um, try to commit a suicide in that specific community. It's like almost, it's like 48%, which is the highest of you know suicide rates. I mean, like of attempt suicide rate. And I could not believe when I heard. Um, so that was, yeah, I think those two were the things. It's, I think it's very important that we're, we are cured, not the words that we want, the, 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 it's very important that we try to learn things that we don't know. Um, Amen to that. Yes. Ivy, you talked about uh, your family and not wanting to do something involved with your family again. Can you talk about that? And then just in general, protecting the people that you are interviewing for documentaries to all of you. Oh, sure. Um, well, I guess what I meant is that it's, it's very hard to um, put your family out there um, and be kind of utilized in the service of a, of a story um, that's going to be out. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not, I don't, um, because I had done it once before too, I made a film called Heir to an Execution uh, many years ago where I dealt with this, this story um, and it was about what happened to my family and I had thought that I had moved on from that and I am a filmmaker who's interested in many stories and to revisit something that's so personal and painful, I didn't, I, I, I didn't jump at the chance to do that, let's put it that way. But I felt that it was important to use that story again to help tell this one um, and to use it in a specific way. So uh, I think that's, that's all it was. It was more of like, uh, okay, how, how can I use this um, um, to help tell the story of Roy Cohn and help people understand what happened, what, what he did, how he operated, um, and how he justified these things to himself, um, and and how that resonates today. I mean, just the other day, Donald Trump said, said you know, threateningly to the about the whistleblower, that you you know you remember what we used to do to spies, and he's talking about my grandparents. He's talking, he's saying like basically we will kill we will kill you. I believe that's what he's saying. And you know, so we we have to. This is a history that many people don't know. Even people my generation don't know the story. And I think it's important, even more important now. To, so in that sense, you feel compelled. I felt compelled to use my family, but it's not an. E I guess what I'm what I'm was trying to say is that it's not. That's not an easy thing for me as a filmmaker, or probably for anyone, to bring their family into that story because it's painful. Um, and what, the other part of your question, I'm sorry. Oh, protecting the people Oh, protecting, the question is protecting the people who we are interviewing. Yeah, that's a big the, part of what we all do. Um, I think probably even more when it's, you know, stories like what, what Tanya and Lynn are doing, but even Rick, because he had some, you know, a person, a 
available. I, you know, I interviewed people about Cone, and there, it's always trust. There's always an establishment of trust, whatever, whatever story you're doing. Um, you know, they're putting themselves in our hands, and they're saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to film all this, and I can do a three-hour interview with someone and use you know, two minutes, and they don't know what two minutes I'm going to use. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you know, Janet Malcolm is famous, the great New Yorker writer, famous for saying at the beginning of a piece that she wrote called The Journalist and the Murderer that, as every honest reporter knows, each time out, you betray your subject. I want to say that the work, the gig that we're in is exactly the opposite of that. You're, you're being given this unusual opportunity to do exactly that. And therefore, you have to double and triple down on not betraying your subject. And it's, I think, the most kind of complex and moral aspect of the work that we do, which is to, in some sense, not let somebody be more revealing than they want to be themselves. Mm-hmm. And you would sort of go like, well, why wouldn't you do that? Mm -hmm. You have them in front of the camera. They've signed the release. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, you can see in a film and spot something's fishy here Mm -hmm. when the filmmakers have not been in an almost parental and exacting way. Absolutely, they're doing what Ivy just said. You're trusting us. And so we will not fuck you over. Even if you're Roy, even if you're Roy Cohn. <laughs> <laughs> this is a. Uh, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, like in our film, nudity was a big thing, and uh, and I mean, even though the the uh, all the characters allowed us to be inside of those rooms, and they knew the camera was all over. When there was when, and should I show, and how much should they show? And for me, that part was a very, very difficult thing in this film, as far as trying to protect them. And you know, it's not because they're giving the okay for me to film everything that I need to show you. Um, and talking about where to put the camera, actually a huge part of the film was made in the editing room with reframing. We fr- reframed so many, so many of the shots that are in the film. And the only times that, like, you know, then it was a very difficult choice to make, but I, I thought they were important, but there are only two times in the film that we do show nudity. It was specifically because that nudity took you to a, a narrative, a, a place in the narrative that was important. Um, but it's, and the same thing I'm thinking about, like, you know, one character who is a sex worker that we had, I mean, that, that the interviews, that stuff that she told us, there was so much material that was there that, like, she did, but that we could have used because it was funny, nobody had done that before. But, you know, like, also being very careful of how I portray this woman out there because she doesn't know. Uh, where she's falling inside of the other, so it's like, I think it's something that you have to be super, super careful, yeah, because those people are trusting you and all that. Um, so the access, even though you have it, it doesn't mean you need to use it in full, you know what I mean? That's the way I see it. I just want to thank you for the question because it really goes to the heart of what we all do in such a deep way, which is, you know, people trust us. 
in one way or another to be vulnerable and to, to, to open themselves up in front of the camera. And it's personal to each of us and to our teens that they are going to do that. And so, you know, and they might reveal themselves in ways that are not appealing or that are, you know, something that might be sorry they said or, you know, that kind of thing. But I think what the core that you hold on to is that you, whatever you do is with integrity and that if someone's being honest and showing a part of themselves that, you know, an audience might not love them for that, but it's part of the story and you can, you understand why they're doing it, they understand, then there's sort of a, that's okay. And if you're sort of, um, the process isn't open, it's very hard to explain, it's very subtle, but if, if there's, there's sort of a line and if you cross it, you're sort of taking something from someone and it's very extractive and exploitative, you know, that doesn't feel like what we want to be doing up here, I don't think, for myself and for everyone I've worked with. So, and it's, it's not, there's no hard and fast rule, but I think what Rick said is exactly right. You have the opportunity to betray your subject at every turn, if that's what you want to do. But you might not ever make another film. <laughs> Although there are filmmakers who do that and yeah. do uh, have yeah, very successful do. doing yeah. it. No, there are. I mean, that's like a different kind of thing. But mm -hmm. you want to get at some authentic, deep human truths, then you can't do it like operating that way. And that's why documentaries are the best. <laughs> <laughs> of time I'm afraid but I do want to thank everyone here and I encourage you all to please seek out these filmmakers uh, learn about them and their films and um, if you want to see more uh, documentaries please check out our website and find out what our screening schedule is but thank you very much for being here thank you Leslie thank, thank you, you Leslie. you've been listening to the film at Lincoln Center podcast our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.